All right, if you can turn to Luke chapter 3. Our Advent series this year, um, we are having an Advent series this year, and it's uh, focused on Jesus the Son, and we're going to go through uh, a variety of uh, sons whom he is, if that makes any sense grammatically. I can't, I don't know. So, um, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at Jesus as... Uh, the son of Adam, Jesus as the son of a woman, uh, or the woman, uh, Jesus as the son of David, uh, Jesus as the son of Mary and Joseph, uh, Jesus as the son of God. So we're going to look at all of those things and develop the um, that biblically. So while our initial text is from Luke 3, a mere verse, as someone had noted, um, we're actually going to spend most of our time in our uh, the Old and New Testament readings of Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and I can actually get to Luke. I'm distracted myself. Uh, Romans chapter 5. So that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning as we uh, explore this idea. Uh, from John 3, uh, sorry, not John 3, Luke 3, we have the genealogy, and I just want to focus on uh, the last part of that, because um, people can get overwhelmed with gene- genealogies. Verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Glorious Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts in order that we might know the hope to which you have called us, uh, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, as well as your incomparably great power for those those who believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. are fascinated with genealogies. Uh, I am not one of those people. Uh, That's okay. Uh, my uncle, Norman, apparently is one of those people, and as I've told you before, uh, he's traced back my mother's side of the family, and uh, he makes this great claim that I, we are somehow uh, descended from Napoleon Bonaparte. And so on the, one, on the one hand, we've got Sicilians, and on the other hand, we've got Corsicans, and um, I don't think it can end well for me. <laughs> okay. We're fascinated by these things um, because, in part, they help explain who we are as people. I mean, even even uh, many of us, we don't just call ourselves Americans, but for some of us, we are Italian-Americans or Polish-Americans or African-Americans. And so there's, there's a sense of... Um, we have this identity as Americans, but we also have this secondary uh, identity, or maybe primary identity, as, say, Canadians. I had to pick on the Canadians today. All right? Identity gets wrapped up in our lineage from whence we have come. And most people need a sense of who they are and, therefore, why they matter. And that's all connected to where you came from, the connections. And Jesus is no different in a sense, 
And Luke is going to tell us from whence Jesus has come. For the Jews, this was a more important thing because you wanted to make sure you traced your lineage back to the proper tribe. If you were a priest, you had to trace your lineage back to the tribe of Aaron, which was a subset of the tribe of Levi. If you were going to be the king, you had to be able to trace your lineage back to David. But that's another sermon and actually another preacher, not myself. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus was born to restore all that Adam has ruined, which is why we're going to spend time in Romans 5. Let's start with Adam. Adam is the head of an unholy humanity. Doesn't sound good, does it? Adam being the head of an unholy humanity. But Luke wants us to know in this little phrase at the end of the genealogy of uh, Jesus, he wants us to know where Jesus has come from so that we might know why Jesus has come and what he's going to do because he has come. And so he throws out this, you know, where... um, where the focus of Matthew is on Jesus as the son of Abraham and as the son of David, here he brings us all the way back to the son of Adam, the son of God. Why is he doing this? Why is he concerned what we should already, in a sense, know? Because everyone is descended from Adam, right? You all are. He wants us to know that, or that at least Paul and Luke, because Luke's gospel really reflects the theology of Paul since he hung around with him so much, okay? Luke identified Jesus with all of humanity, not just with Israel. That's precisely because his gospel is for all of humanity. It wasn't just for Israel. And so Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is fully human, and that means more than we sometimes think it means, and therefore fulfills the role as the Son of God that Adam initially had, and yet forfeited by his sin and rebellion. So let's talk about Adam. We see in Genesis 1, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And that is fundamental to understanding who Adam was. Not just Adam, but also Eve was also created in the image of God. They were created, shall we say, in a... um, not just to be a mirror to God, but to be like God in many ways. Because God is relational, we have the whole reality of the Trinity. God is love, and the, the, Trinity, the Trinity is a loving community that has always existed. God made man and woman to exist in loving community with one another as well as with him. We see that God is not only a relational being, but he is a volitional being. He didn't have to create everything that it is. 
He chose to create everything that is, and so man was gifted with a will. We see that that God is a moral being, and so man made in his image is also a moral being. He knows right from wrong. In addition to that, we see that God is also a creative being. And so man was also, because we bear his image, we also create. We write books of imaginary worlds. We write songs from other people's experiences. We paint things and make drawings. Those are reflections of the fact that we are made in the image of God, and so we have this capacity to do things. Right here, though, the very next verse of Genesis notes that therefore be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth that you might have dominion over it. And so part of what it means in, in to be made in the image of God for Adam and Eve is to begin to rule in God's stead. To rule under the authority of God, the rest of creation was what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. If we spent time looking through uh, Genesis chapter 2, it gets, it's a little different than chapter 1. It gets down into more the detail of how Adam and Eve were created. And we see that they were created in a sequential order. Adam first, Eve second. Eve was created to be a helper or uh, suitable to Adam in the, the fulfilling of the creation mandate. Okay, we see that. We see that God gave instructions, he gave the commandments to Adam, who then gave them to Eve. And so we begin to see a pattern emerging that while they are both created in God's image, and while they are both Equal in God's sight, there's something significantly different about Adam than there is about Eve. This becomes even more important when we see what happening that happens. As the story unfolds in chapter 3, we see that it is Eve who sins first. We see that repeated by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And yet, what Paul does in Romans chapter 5, it says that even though Eve is the one who sinned first, it was Adam's sin that plunged the rest of humanity into a condition of sin. And so part of what's unique about Adam is that Adam is a, what was called a covenant head. He represented everyone else by his own actions within the covenant that God had given to him in Genesis chapter 2. Eve was not the covenant head. Otherwise, we all would be have sinned in Eve, but rather Adam was. And so we all sinned in Adam. I'm reminded 
of Lowell and Hardy. It's another fine mess you've gotten us into. That's what I want to say to Adam sometimes. Another fine mess you've gotten us into, son. Because he is the one who has, who has um, not just made a mess for himself, but made a mess for us. And Paul's theology that we see here in Romans chapter 5, we, there's a progression that takes place. There is one man, Adam. There is one trespass, one sin that takes place. And as a result of that, sin therefore enters the world, and therefore we see that death reigns. And because of this, there are therefore now many trespasses. But it's important what what Paul says there. Death reigns because we all sinned. Meaning, we all sinned when Adam sinned. Death reigns not because you have sinned personally this week, but sin, uh, death and sin already reigned precisely because Adam had sinned. Because he was our representative. Just like President Obama is our president. Doesn't matter whether you voted for him or not, he's your president if you're an American. And in a couple of months, President-elect Donald Trump is going to be your president. Doesn't matter whether you voted for him or not, he will be your president if you're an American. The actions of the president have consequences for you. Whether you like the president or not, if he says, we're at war, in in, in legal sense, we're at war with somebody. You don't have to want to be at war. You can disagree about the fact of being at war, but nonetheless, you as a citizen, as part of this country, are now at war with a particular country. That's the way this idea of representation works. And so don't think, well, I didn't vote for Adam. Doesn't matter. I didn't choose Adam. It doesn't matter. God created Adam to be the covenant head. God chose Adam to be the covenant head. And let us all realize that Adam, who was perfect in every way, did at least as good as you would. Okay? Now we have the problem of sin having being in the world. Everything has changed. Westminster Shorter Catechism 18 puts it this way, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell, fell. The answer, the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, meaning we're now guilty of his sin because he was our representative. Now the want of original righteousness that has been removed from us, Adam had it, now he doesn't, neither do we. And the corruption of his whole nature, meaning we are fully depraved. 
which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. And so the ugly truth is, is that all of us fell in Adam. We, were, we fell into a pit, and that pit keeps getting deeper and deeper as we continue to sin. That's just the way it is. Now, let's think about this for a second. My wife grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a nominal Catholic home. We were at one point in time, as though our children find it hard to believe, teenagers. And as teenagers, we, like most teenagers, experienced times of rebellion when we didn't want to do what our parents told us. My rebellion resulted in things like binge drinking and any other number of sins I could lay out here before you and you'd go, boy, why do we listen to that guy, okay? (laughs) Amy's rebellion was that she, against her parents' will, would listen to Top 40 radio. (laughs) You heard it here first, folks. Now, it doesn't matter whether or not it's right or wrong to listen to Top 40 Radio. What matters is that her parents told her not to listen to Top 40 Radio. Okay? Both our sins, one which obviously is serious and one which appears to be, you got to be kidding me, both flowed from the same place, which is the corruption that we we received because we are uni- we were united to Adam and we have fallen in Adam. And so um while while my sin looks worse and may have far greater earthly consequences um it's part of why I realized wow God must want me alive. Okay? When I became a Christian because I finally saw my sin for what it was and how destructive it was in so many ways. It flows from the same source, and that though it looks different in, in these two examples, the wages of sin is death. And so don't think that just because you haven't you know, killed somebody or whatever, that your sin isn't serious in the eyes of God. It makes no difference whether you steal a candy bar or rob a bank of a million dollars, you're still guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment. And the wages of sin is death. Even though the wages on earth might be very different. And so we should all see ourselves from God's perspective as ones who are guilty. Both sins flow out of original corruption, and both deserve death. But not only that do we see here, but we also should see that the image of God that Adam was, was distorted. That it, will be, it, it got twisted and tarnished and broken in many ways, like a mirror can be broken, and then distort the reflection that we see. And so, because of this distortion of the image of God, what happens is we actually distort truth, we actually distort ethics. 
This is, I think, part of what Paul is getting at when he says, um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They no longer reflect the glory of God as they were intended to. We are now like a funhouse mirror at an amusement park. You know, the ones that make you look fatter than you really are, or taller than you really are. We distort the image of God that way. We make God look differently than he really is because we're all wavy and stuff. You're getting a sense now of what has happened in Adam. We have been profoundly broken and we are profoundly sinful and profoundly guilty. As we consider who we are, we must see Adam as the sinner, as a head of a rather unholy humanity. Let's get to the good news quickly. First off, we see Jesus is the head of a new covenant community. You see, Christmas becomes incredibly necessary if sinners such as us, who are guilty, who are corrupt, are to be saved from the wrath of God, the penalty of sin. And so Jesus arrives uh, not just as a person in and of himself, as an individual, but Jesus comes as the second Adam. The second Adam who was born to die, who was born to be raised again, who was born to restore all the things that the first Adam ruined. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for instance, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul there in 1 Timothy 2 is not denying the divinity of Jesus. He teaches that elsewhere numerous times. His point rather is, it is a man who must die, because it was a man who sinned. And so just as the first mediator of the covenant was a man a human, so the second must be fully human. Paul, here in Romans 5, partially part of what he's doing here is trying to remind us, actually remind his critics in Rome and elsewhere, and then us, that the law cannot restore what was lost in Adam. So we have that little bit about the law at the end, and we see that he touched on it um, in Romans 3 when we looked at that on Reformation Day, that it's not just, well, humanity's broken, here's the law, have a good day. That if we just follow the law, everything is going to be all right. Because you have an internal predisposition to disobey the law. We all do it. We all know what happens every time you see the sign, do not walk on the grass. Part of you wants to walk on the grass. Do not touch. You touch. Or at least you, you hold yourself back from wanting to, from touching it because you want to touch it. You have an internal predisposition to breaking the law. So the giving of the law does not 
end sin, but actually multiplies sin. And so we see it unfolding there in Romans 1, verses 18 and following, as just it gets worse and worse. And we see a lot of those things in our own culture. The violence. The inability to communicate, to be kind, unless you agree 110% with what I say with you every moment. Into all of that, Jesus comes. Because Paul says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. There was one coming, his name is Jesus, and he is the head of a new covenant. And so where Adam is our covenant head by birth, Jesus is only our covenant head by faith. Paul does not explicitly say that in that portion of Romans 5, but we know that from Romans 3. Okay, We are only made righteous by faith in Christ because we, Christ becomes our covenant head, can be the addition. We see here that Jesus, as the son of Adam, identifies with sinners because in our union with him, he becomes sin, as it talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, so that he might make us righteous. How is it that he became sin? By union with us, he took on our sin. Just as by union with us, he grants us his righteousness. That double transfer, it must be understood within the context of union with Christ, our covenant head. And so we see as we kind of think through Romans 5, that just as we saw that with Adam there was one man, one trespass, sin entered the world, death reigned, many transgressions, we could, put, we could un, unpack Jesus, Jesus in the terms of, despite there being many transgressions, we have one act of righteousness which brings justification to many, and so that sin, uh, sorry, rather, so that grace reigns and we reign in life. Paul says both things. Okay? So instead of death reigning, and instead of sin reigning, we now see that grace reigns, and that we, changed by grace, begin to reign in Christ. And so we see that the gift is much greater than the trespass. Two times, Paul says there, how much more with respect to grace? We see as well, grace abounded all the more. And so what Paul really wants the Romans to understand and he wants us to understand is, yeah, your sin is great. You have the problem of Adam. You have his sin that you're guilty for. But you also have multitudes of your own sins, many trespasses that you have committed. But here's the good news. The one act of righteousness of Jesus Christ is far greater than all of those sins. And that should fill us with incredible joy. There's a song, in fact, grace greater than all our sins. And it is hard for us to fathom that, which is why we have to have a song and sing about it so that we can work it into our heads and hopefully into our hearts that the grace of God is greater than all of our sins because we can sometimes 
be overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of condemnation. In other words, let's put it this way, just to sort of twist the words, not twist, uh, adapt the words of Corey Ten Boom, there is no pit of sin deeper than Jesus' ability to pull us out by his righteousness. No matter how deep you go, because of first Adam's sin and then all the rest that you do, you know, I was in a deeper hole than Amy, not deeper than Jesus. And his capacity to reach in and pull me out. Doesn't matter how deep you think it is, he is able, more than able, to rescue you from that hole. And so we see a great contrast. We have Adam who brings condemnation and death, but we see Jesus who brings justification and life. This is part of why Paul can say in, in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's because of that union with Christ, his death now becomes my death. I was crucified upon the cross with Christ And when he was raised from the dead, I too was raised from the dead because of my union with Christ. All that has happened to him has happened to me so that now I'm able to live in the presence of God in righteousness and peace and joy. And so, as we consider that for just a moment... Do we view each other in Adam or in Christ? In other words, how are your relationships maintained? Do you try to operate on the basis of law? I will be nice to the people who are nice to me, but I will be nasty to the people who are nasty to me. Do we operate on the basis of law with regard to our spouses? I will be kind to Amy as long as she does what I want. I will be kind to my children as long as they obey. But once they disobey, (laughs) they ain't getting any new clothes. I got your attention, Ash. (laughs) Or do I operate on the basis of grace with regard to those I meet. I may not like what they have done, but Christ has paid the price for that. And so I'm able to remain connected with them, even though I might rebuke or admonish or correct, particularly my children. Grace. Are we interacting with people on the basis of law or grace? I will love you if, or I love you even though. I love you despite. So if you trust in Christ, he is your new covenant head in the covenant of grace 
Thirdly, Jesus is the head of a holy humanity because in addition to being a covenant head, Jesus is also the image of God as man and as mediator. We saw from uh, 1 Timothy 2 the reality that Jesus as fully human, and that points us as well to that the idea of the, being the image of God. Colossians 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so in both of those phrases are pointing us back to the reality of the full humanity of Jesus Christ. His position in place as the one who fully reveals God to us. He perfectly reflects who God is to us. Not simply that He is God, but that His humanity is not like your humanity, fallen in Adam, but that His humanity is as God intended Adam before the fall. We see it as well in Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the power of His Word. And so the author of Hebrews is bringing in the incarnate, the the crucified and resurrected and ascended Jesus in this whole big, as someone said, kaleidoscope of ideas. The image of God in His humanity. And so Jesus perfectly reflects the glory of the Father as He trusts, as He obeys, as our mediator. And that's very important to keep in mind. As mediator. He's doing this for us. So if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, you merely have to look at Jesus as He's portrayed to us in the Scriptures and you see what God is is like. Now, why is that important to us? Because we're united to Him, remember? And if we're united to Christ, who is the image of God, He is going to be restoring in us the image of God that Adam ruined. He's going to make you from an unholy person into a holy person. And so there's not just that positional reality of justification, but there's also the personal reality, the practical reality in sanctification. He's going to make us personally righteous just as we have been declared to be righteous because of His obedience. We see this, for instance, In Ephesians chapter 4, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We see it as well in its, uh, its counterpart, Colossians 3. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so Paul really had this idea that he's communicated on numerous occasions that 
because we're united to Christ, he is, he is now restoring that image of God within us. And our sanctification needs to be understood within that reality of union and image. Sinclair Ferguson in his new book notes, God is restoring in our lives the image which we were created to reflect. And so what does that mean? It means in part that Jesus restores us in terms of righteousness. Jesus grants us the desire and the power to grow in obedience. So because we're united to Him through the power of the Holy Spirit, we now begin to experience godly desires. A desire to read His Word, a desire to pray, a desire to believe, a desire to be kind, a desire to seek peace, a desire to be self-controlled. All of these godly desires begin to rise up within us because we have been united with Christ. And so we, we begin to grow increasingly obedient because of our union with Christ. Not only that, but Jesus restores us relationally. Because we're united with Him, He works in us, giving us a greater desire to both love other people and to be loved by other people in community. And so, if you're a rugged individualist, don't worry, Jesus is going to work, and at some point, you're going to realize, I need the body of Christ, because I need Christ. And there He gives me the body. I was made to love and be loved, because I'm in the image of God, and therefore, you begin to see this as good, not bad. So you'll grow relationally in the image of God. Let's go back to an application point with this. We're not there yet, right? We're still on the road, right? Jesus is working, right? Do we attack one another since we're not fully sanctified and they're not fully sanctified? Or are we grateful for the progress that God has already granted them? That's very important. It gets back to that idea of, of law and gospel and relationships. Okay? It's easy to become exasperated with the persistent sin of the important people in your life. And it's easy to lose um, context, perspective. That's the word I want. We, we easily forget from whence they have come. That's part of why I like it when Amy comes to visit my family with me, because she's reminded God has done so much in Steve. Oh, there's so far to go. <laughs> but God has got the, the faithful God who brought him this far is going to be faithful to bring him the rest of the way. 
perspective. The gospel should provide us with perspective so that we aren't destroying one another because we haven't arrived yet. But rather we accept one another, as Paul says in Romans, as God has accepted us in Christ Jesus. Not because we had it together, but as people who are weak, who are helpless, who are sinners, who are enemies. We see as well that Jesus restores us volitionally. In other words, he's working in us by the Holy Spirit, as we see in Philippians 2, to work and to will according to God's purpose. We see that Jesus restores us as creative people and as stewards so that we're able to use our resources to God's glory. Sometimes we don't talk about art as much as we probably could, but think about the creation of the tabernacle and then the temple. In both places, they talked about the Holy Spirit gifting and empowering people to bring beauty to the tabernacle and the temple. Guys like, uh, oh, I can't remember his name right now, uh, Belazel, I always, I always goof up his name. Uh, I believe it was Belazel. Okay. And he equips many of us to become good stewards and to be creative and find new solutions to persistent problems because we are taking dominion over the world that he has given us. Okay. So, who are we? Let's not stop our genealogy back a few hundred years with Napoleon for instance. But let's remember that it goes all the way back to Adam. That we are born with our identity in Adam, who was the head of an unholy humanity. That we, because of Adam, are guilty. We are distorted. We're broken. But let us remember that Jesus is the second Adam. And then as the second Adam, he was sent to form a new holy humanity through faith in his incarnation, his death upon the cross for sin, and his resurrection from the dead. And so when we are united to Jesus by faith, we not only receive his righteousness, but he also works to restore his image in us by that same grace. And so where is your identity? Who is your head? Adam or Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we were ruined by Adam, that you, you, you sent another one. That Adam the first was the pattern for Adam the second. And that Adam the second perfectly obeyed you so that grace can reign in life. That Adam the second undoes all the destruction that Adam the first has loosed upon the world. 
And Father, we rejoice in the ways in which we experience it now and in regeneration and justification and adoption and sanctification. And yet, Father, we long for the fullness of it in glorification. When we and the rest of creation will be free from the curse completely. So, Father, help us to uh, trust Jesus as the second Adam. Help us to put off these clothes, so to speak, that we wear because of Adam and to put on new clothes of righteousness because we are now in Jesus Christ. Continue to renew us in that holy image so that we can become in person what we are already positionally because of the Son. Continue to make us a holy humanity for our good and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.